On this episode of Inside Music Cast, we're proud to welcome singer, songwriter, and keyboardist Kiki Ebsen as we chat with her about her music career performing with the likes of Chicago, Al Jarreau, and Christopher Cross, including her soon-to-be-released solo album, The Beauty Inside. Inside Music Cast welcomes the lovely and talented Kiki Ebsen. Hey, Kiki, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, welcome. You know, first of all, we want to thank Christopher Cross for connecting us to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we recently interviewed him when he was here in Indianapolis for a show with the Symphony Orchestra here. And, you know, it was funny, a couple of nights before the show, he sent me a text around midnight. <laughs> 
and mentioned that we should consider having you on IMC Inside Music Cast. What time was that? <laughs> it was it was midnight. It was literally was midnight. And, and of course, you know, after hearing some of your past albums, we knew that we had to have you on. So thanks, Christopher, and thanks, yes. Kiki, for joining us. Absolutely. Oh, thanks, yeah. Christopher. He's great. <laughs> well, speaking of Christopher, you know, you've been out on tour with him for. I guess a lot of the summer, and I uh, just wanted to ask how that tour was going overall, and are you guys still playing dates? Yeah, it's well, it's going great. Um, it is really um, such a fun band, great musicians, and we're going to a lot of different places. It's really, really rewarding, and it just seems to get busier. We're, we just finished, um, we did a date over the weekend down in Newport, at the Newport Hyatt as part, part of their little um, music festival mm-hmm. and then we're going to be in europe for most of november it looks like wow um but you know we go out we go out almost every weekend and you know three to six days but like i said in november we'll be gone for about a month well how many of those shows this summer were like i mentioned the one here in indianapolis was a gig with uh, the symphony orchestra oh, the symphony, yeah. and i think you have one coming up in nashville pretty yeah, soon right in, in did you have any others, or are those just the? Are we those did the one earlier in the year in Texas, um, Stafford, uh, Texas. Oh, and okay. Trying to do more. The, the music, you know, really lends itself to the symphony, mm-hmm. and with the beautiful Chris Walden charts, um, mm-hmm. free charts. That, right. You know, for me, I, I'm a. You know, I got my degree in, in concert voice and opera, so you know, I'm I love singing with the orchestra and playing with the orchestra. The colors are so phenomenal. So mm-hmm. It's a pleasure for me. Especially with arrangements like Walden's, huh? Oh yeah, it's just amazing. We we talked about that a little while with Christopher. That it just they're just drop dead gorgeous they <laughs> arrangements. Really are, yeah. You know, I think um, his his mentor was Jeremy Lovett. So yep, exactly. So he's got that whole thing going. He does it really, really well. Absolutely it's quite beautiful. Well, we wanted to congratulate you, first of all, on your new, new brand new album that's coming out, uh, The the Beauty Inside. And we're going to go into that uh, a little more shortly, but we wanted our audience to get to know you a little better. So if, uh, first of all, you know, you grew up in L.A., and of course, we all know that it's no secret who your dad is, Buddy Ebsen, the very famous actor. But uh, in a snap, give us a snapshot of, of uh, as we get to know you a little bit, give us an idea of what your childhood was like uh, growing in a, a pretty serious Hollywood scene in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, you know, um, I we started off in the Hollywood Hills. Mm-hmm. I'm the youngest of, of about six children. I kind of lose count after a while. Wow. <laughs> uh, I'm the youngest girl. Um, my brother and I were just the two, you know, like um, uh, we like to think of like the afterthoughts. But we, <laughs> we uh, st- were in, we, I was born in Santa Monica and lived in Beverly Hills for about the first four years of my life. And then my father had this idea that he's a, he was an avid sailor. And I think it was during the Cuban crisis that he decided in the early 60s we needed to move down to Balboa Island to be close to his boat just in case we needed to make a mass, you know, exodus. Exactly. So we sold the house on Hudson Drive and and, uh, moved down to Balboa Island and lived in this little bungalow with uh, all of us uh, and uh, all, you know, just like it was a two-room house and... We we lived there for about a year and then we got a little place on the on the bayfront and grew up in Balboa Island. So that was very removed from Hollywood. Yeah. And my dad used to drive up to the studio, but I went up there quite a bit. You know, and would hang out on the set. And you know, I'm I'm a big animal girl, so the first thing I would do is just go right to the animals. You know, <laughs> Donald Douglas had all those chimpanzees and the dogs and 
Duke, there was an old Duke and a young Duke. Really? So oh, yeah. The show, there was that Duke that just was asleep all the time. Right, 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 yeah. And then all of a sudden, he'd be, like, on fire. <laughs> well, that's, like, a whole other Duke. So there was, like, a Duke that was a two-year-old, another Duke that was, like, 15. <laughs> Insight. <laughs> they were further identical. Insight on um, the critters. So, yeah, so that was fun. And I used to, you know, go over to the Seamat Pond, which was about three feet deep, you know, and... <laughs> <laughs> um, it was just a trip and play on the the old truck and yeah. meet all the cast members and it was pretty fun. The only Dukes that I know were Bo and Luke. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm kidding. I, I, you know, you mentioned Balboa Island and about five years ago, I went boating uh, in Newport Beach with our very first Inside Music cast guest, uh, Scott Page, oh. and uh, we we sailed past that little island in it. And you know, I just remember that it just really stood out to me because I saw <laughs> the sign. It said "Welcome to Balboa Island." I took a picture of it, and it, it looks like such a cool little village. And I wanted to. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you, what was it like living on that little island? And you're right, it so it seems so removed from everything else L.A. Yeah, it was idyllic, um, yeah. really. Because um, Balboa Island is, is tucked away inside the Balboa Peninsula, and then mm-hmm. there's Lido Island. Actually, John Wayne lived on Lido Island. And so my parents used to, you know, go to, go to his place a bit. And, mm-hmm. uh, wow. you know, you're down near Laguna Beach, and yep. it's just, we were all, because my dad was a sailor, we, so we all learned to sail, and we were all part of the, you know, the yacht club, and, and it wasn't like a yacht club, like, you know, a millionaire's club. It was very low-key stuff. We all would race Sabbaths and Lido 14s and, mm-hmm. and did a lot of, uh, there was a lot of water sports in front of our house, uh, a lot of competition, swimming and, and uh, paddle boarding and all that kind of stuff. And we'd go to Catalina all the time. We'd sail over to Catalina. And so it was really, really a great way to grow up as a child. And then somewhere along the, uh, during that journey, my parents bought a ranch out in uh, Agora, uh, which is up near Malibu. So I had the horse thing and the water thing. So I had, like, a really great, you know, uh, childhood in terms of access to nature and outdoor sports. That's neat. You know, just in case, uh, you know, somebody out there listening is not following along, your your father was Buddy Epson, who was who was really famous for uh, Jed Clampett on the on the Beverly Hillbillies, and also he played Barnaby Jones. But I, I wanted to just briefly, won't spend a lot of time on that, but I know he was he was a great dancer. Mm-hmm. Dancing was his thing, and and he even play he even enjoyed uh, playing guitar. And I I just wondered, you know, were your parents uh, uh, influential on you musically? They were. My mother was actually, um, her, her mother was a concert pianist, so mm-hmm. her and her sisters, they also were avid, you know, pianists, classical, you know, pianists as well. And, in fact, my cousin is Jim Pugh, plays with Robert Cray, and he's phenomenal. Oh, right, player. yeah. So um, my mother uh, definitely influenced me to play piano. Well, I ended up playing by ear for the most part. I mean, I took a lot of lessons, but I was drawn to the piano, whereas my mother, who was also a theater um, she taught theater, and she was really involved with children's theater, so that's where her tie-in to acting came, and my dad, of course, was an actor, and my sister was an actress. I was drawn to music, I think, because it just seemed a little crowded in the acting category. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it all, they did everything at that time. You know, you weren't just actors back then. You sang, and you danced, and, you know, sometimes played an instrument, and you were song and dance. That's what my dad was, a song and dance man. So. Yeah. So what age were you? I mean, I, I recall, I'm a keyboardist myself, and I remember, gee whiz, picking up stuff by ear and that type of thing and even being able to break down chords. How old were you when you started actually oh. playing some of the, the theatrical stuff and melodies and your mom sort of like said, holy cow, you, you've got this, you know? Well, I was always just playing stuff on the piano. I was probably as early as three and four, just banging out melodies. And they were, you know, pretty impressed with, 
that I could pick pick up melodies that fast. Yeah. And I, of course, I completely um, snowed my piano teachers <laughs> into thinking that I could read because I'd asked them <laughs> to play the lesson for me and, and I'd tape memorize it. it. And then I just pretended to read it, right. but I was actually just playing it by ear. <laughs> 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 they caught on though after a while yeah. and I got I was in trouble then. But. Well, I think I read that you, uh, w- one of the things that you did, you know, in and learning music sort of on your own was was that you were in some garage bands. Oh, yeah. And tell me, I'm just curious to know a little bit about these bands. Well, I, the first band I was in was with my brother, Dusty, who played drums. Mm-hmm. And we were like 11 and 12, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're just basically getting together with your neighborhood kids, you know, and, and whoever could play what would play. And I always played piano or whatever, my Farfisa piano, organ, whatever keyboard I had. Well, actually, it was my upright piano at the house for a long time. And I think our first gig we did was at a talent showcase in junior high school. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think I played, actually, I didn't even play keyboards. I played the recorder part, and we played Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> to <Just> a <kind of laughs> recorder. <laughs> and Everybody I, but, has Yeah, it was like, <laughs> the intro part. Yeah, that was my big part. <laughs> On the That's recorder, great. I love it. On the it. recorder. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and then I played, you know, I had a high school uh, rock band, and uh, I actually, you know, I was sort of the token girl, and it was very, very chauvinistic <laughs> at the time. It was basically a guy a trio, a hard rock trio. But they were playing like my favorite tunes, Alice Cooper and Grand Funk, and right. you know, like really cool songs. And I wanted to play in their band so bad, but I was like a girl, and this was the seventies, you know, the early seventies. And so I remember learning Alice Cooper's "My Stars." Yeah, yeah, beautiful, cool piano yeah. part. And going to a party where they were playing, because they wouldn't let me audition for them, or they didn't want a girl in their band. And I remember there was a piano behind a curtain at this somebody's house where they were playing, and I just started playing it. And they were, like, freaking out, and they started playing it, and then that was it. You know, <laughs> we opened the curtain, and there I was, and, you know, I ended up playing that band all, all through high school. <laughs> and now there was a chick in the band. <laughs> yeah, now they had a chick in the band. <laughs> and, you know, we still get together, like, every like every year or two, we get together. And, That's great. And jam and do a gig somewhere. It's fun. That's funny. <laughs> You studied uh, classical voice at the California Institute of the Arts. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but after you graduated, I'm really curious about this gig that you got with with Chicago. You're yeah. playing keyboards, and I guess you were also a MIDI tech. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, you you weren't actually on stage, right? No. Okay. No. I okay. So I I was in college, uh, graduated, and immediately abandoned my classical. <laughs> Cool career. Yeah. Immediately. <laughs> and my mother was so happy about that. She was like, oh, my God. She was hoping I'd be a big opera singer. But um, I really love pop music. So mm-hmm. actually, I think what happened is I started a MIDI software company back then. Really? And um, got really involved with the technical side of music. Mm-hmm. And so I learned all about computers. And that's just when it was first coming out, you know, the, the MIDI. Right. Uh, phenomena at the time was, was really just getting started. So there weren't that many, many people who knew about it, but bands wanted to take advantage of it. And through you know, a, sequence of, a sequence of events, I hooked up with Chicago uh, yeah. where they needed a mini-tech to uh, go on tour and okay. replace the girl that was, you know, the person that was working for them. And I came on board and I said, they asked if I knew about these samplers, and I said yes, and I didn't, but I knew, you know, I just thought I would learn, you know. And I just said yes to the opportunity, and then I made sure I knew what I had to do before I got to the first gig, which mm-hmm. was kind of a leap of faith. 
Yeah. But mm-hmm. it's actually kind of a good thing to do because it forces you to get outside your comfort zone. Right. And I joined their tour and worked with them. I joined them for about two years. And um, I was behind the stage, uh-huh. and I had just stacks of emulators. And uh, I think we were still working on a Macintosh Plus at that time. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I'd have to change... We'd have to use, uh, because we don't have all these luxuries that we have now with samplers and computers, um, I would have to change floppy disks in the middle of songs oh my gosh. Oh my to gosh. actually change from French horns to strings yeah. so that I could get to, so that the player, usually it was like James Panko or so, whoever was playing keyboards at the time, we could get to the French horns at the, in time. I have like 60 seconds for the thing to load up, you know, yeah, like, right. if you leave me now, you know, where, the, where there's <laughs> the French horns in the bridge, I have to like, oh my God, if I mess this up, he's, he's going to play nothing, you know. <laughs> so um, there was a lot of uh, stress, but it was all good fun, and they're really nice guys, and you know. So you're kind of like the wizard of, like Wizard of Oz, you were behind I the, was the, wizard of Oz. Behind the curtain, pulling all the levers. What are doing <laughs> there? Well, my my question to continue that is, uh, in in terms of just meeting the Chicago, who was it that you met, and how did you get connected to Chicago? Oh, okay. Well, I was working. I was spending a lot of time over at Michael Sabello's studio. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, and he was a friend, and I met a girl there who was the MIDI tech for Chicago. Okay, uh, named Peggy McAfee. And she also had, she was a recording engineer, and she wanted to stay home and build a studio. So she wanted me to actually sub for her. She wanted to hire me to go out in her place so that she could stay home a little more. Okay. Chicago was working quite a bit. So actually, I was dating. She offered the gig to my boyfriend at the time, who was a keyboard player, but he turned his nose up at it because he wanted to play on stage. Okay. (laughs) And I was like, uh, I'll go. (laughs) And of course, my boyfriend's like, wait a minute. I went, you just turned it down, I'll do it, you know? So I just, I, had, I mean, I just wanted to get, I'd been wanting to get into the touring life for years. I was, you know, playing in, in bands and doing the local, you know, try to get a record deal thing for such a long time. I really tried to break into the touring world. And here's a tour that's already established, the money's good, and they're going to Japan. I'll, I'll do it. I don't care if I have to play behind yeah, really. the drum riser. You know, you never know. You never know who you're going to meet. Right. You never know what's going to happen. So... She hires me, and um, I ended up just, you know, taking over the job because she wanted to stay home, and, and I just, you know, we, we had a really, they loved me, and I, I was really enjoying being out there. And I learned a great deal, not yeah. only about the, just the technical side, but just about how to get along. Sure. You know, I'm the only girl, it's 18 guys, I'm riding with the crew. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's my first tour. I mean, it was pretty intense. I, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> politically, you know, just to try and negotiate your space and boundaries and, you know. Just the whole lifestyle, but yeah, but you were used to it because you played in garage bands with a bunch of boys, <laughs> right? Exactly, just the whole bus thing. You know, that's always interesting. What no, year? it was. They were actually just super. They were all like a bunch of brothers to me, so oh. it was. It was good. They looked after me. So <laughs> what, what year was that, Kiki? And the, it was uh, nineteen eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Well, I was just going to refer a little bit to. I mean, number one, I couldn't really believe that you guys are touring with emulators, and I mean, you live and die by that stuff by putting the floppy disks. I mean, I can just imagine your agonies. Sometimes, you oh know? my God! If, if you had like a spike in the electricity and you get one of those errors in the yeah. ro- loading, yep. you're, you're it's forget done. it. Yeah, you exactly. get it loaded in time. So by that time, you already were, you were already uh, you know programming emulators. You'd work with the Akai machines mm-hmm. and the yeah. samplers and stuff. So that was a little after the DXs and the Insonics and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so yeah. You, they were you know the technology was moving at such a rapid yeah. pace that um, you know it wasn't before you know. 
too long that, you know, we, we were on computer, mm-hmm. you know, at this point. But at Absolutely. that time, you had to learn to truncate and crossfade and do all that stuff on the machine. Yeah. And, you know, it could be challenging. Well, that, that's, that's, that's a tougher gig than people think, even being behind the curtain, because although you, you, people don't see you, all the pressure's on you. Well, yeah. I mean, there, were, and there was a variety of things that I had to, you know, be responsible for. Because I did play. I mean, I played strings and or- orchestral parts yeah. that they weren't able to cover. Right. But I also, you know, Danny Serafin was experimenting a lot with, the, like, uh, real-time uh, MIDI triggering. Sure. So he mm-hmm. used that Garfield Time Commander. Sure, right meant that he triggered it with his bass drum yep. at the time. Right. Again, if there was any mistake or any sound that went off, that, that the machine would accept that as a downbeat. So we had things triggering, like, out of control, crazy yeah. stuff going on. And you have to, like, you know, damage control, pull faders down, try to reset stuff, and yeah. try, not to, try to make it not affect the show. <laughs> and then they also um, did a thing with their background vocals where I played samples of certain really large vocals, like you're the inspiration and things like that, that, right. that were very produced. Instead of them playing along to a track, which is what a lot of bands will do now, to keep it in real time, I played along with their vocals. So yeah. I, I truncated every <laughs> syllable, you know, your, the meaning in my life. And it was all on a, triggered by a key. So wow. I had to, yeah, it was, wow. it was really wild. Or we can make it happen, we can make it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and... It was a lot of fun. It was like a, a really cool game, you know, to play. And then the sound man would just mix it in accordingly, depending on what they needed for the room. But it, he used it more like an effect, like a doubling effect, as opposed to replacing or, you know, making it more than what their harmonies were. Because they were yeah. all terrific singers. That's amazing. You were playing the vocals. <laughs> yeah, from the keyboard. Yeah, exactly. Using a Kai sample. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask a little bit because in rolling over, uh, you know, from that that position, you work with Al Jarreau a little bit, you know. Right. And I was curious because I'm a huge Al Jarreau fan, and I didn't know what what year that was that you were. That was eighty nine. Eighty nine. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Eighty nine, ninety. I got gotcha. you. Okay. And what? that was a um, that was just a, another phenomenal, you know, stroke of luck. Um, you know, finding getting it, it, again. Like if I look back on it, I could have never planned how everything just tied you know, to another, but I, I had befriended Chester Thompson, yeah. a drummer. Right? Yeah, right. And, and uh, who's just a great guy. And, mm-hmm. and we used to hang out and write music, and, and you know, just, he was just a cool friend of mine, and he said that, you know, he had contacted, uh, he was in contact with Al's manager about some potential gigs, and that he had heard that Vonda Shepard, who was playing with Al at the time, just made a record, and she was going to be leaving at some point. So I immediately cold called, you know, Bill Darlington, who was Al's manager, and introduced myself and used Chester's name. He had to drop some name and just said, I'd really love to be considered for that. Mm-hmm. I was still working with Chicago at the time. Yeah. And they said, well, you know, she's going to leave one of these days, and, you know, we're not sure when, but you'll be sure to check back. Well, I checked back, like, you know, every two to three weeks for, like, a year. Uh-huh. And finally, I just quit Chicago you know, because they kept saying, well, she's getting real close, and, you know, she's just about done with the record. I just quit Chicago and just said, you know, I want to just leave a space here because I yeah. know they're going to be auditioning. And, they, and Chicago guys were like, are you sure you want to leave, even though you don't have another job? And I said, I said, yeah, I'm ready. I need to be on stage now and, and, and play. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as I did that, within a couple of weeks, I got the audition. And, and wow. um, you know, and that was an intense audition with uh, Ricky Lawson, Ricky Minor, and Neil Larson. Yeah. Just the four of us. And, um, and they chose me, and I was 
That's wow. neat. You know, the music is, is uh, how would you describe the difference? I mean, because I don't want to say that Al Jarreau's music is much more complex, but, you know, it, it's, it's much more complex. It is. It <laughs> is. I mean, you get stuff, I mean, you're playing stuff like Blue Rondo a la Turk and Roof Garden and, you know, that thing. Oh, yeah, there's Alonso some, and, you know, I mean, I was just, and plus I'm singing, I'm, I'm you know, doing all the background parts with um, this incredible band and yeah. doing I was playing second keys, but that meant uh, playing all the bells and whistle parts. And some of them are so different. You know, you have the coordination between the other different parts plus vocal parts. Yeah. Um, it's like patting your head, head and, you know, patting your stomach or whatever. Chewing gum, patting your head. Um, I had to really practice that stuff. And it challenged me uh, considerably, but it was just one of the most rewarding gigs I've ever done. Yeah, you know, last year Al Jarreau was was here, and you know he's up there in age. But I met up with uh, a former uh, Inside Music Cast guest of uh, ours and a good friend, Larry Williams. Oh yeah, um, you know who was playing with Al, and I met up with him and and able, was able to greet Al after the show. And you know what, this guy's up there in age, but he still puts on one heck of a show. Yeah, he's you know, amazing. He he is amazing. So I, I think that's a, that's a probably a really neat thing that you got your chance to 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 spend how much time with him. I did. I spent about two years working with him, and then I did came back every once in a while just to sub for you know for a couple of things, but you know, like in '91. But it was one of those it's one of those calling card gigs like where once you get that kind of gig, you're pretty much on the map. You're right. And, mm-hmm. um, thanks to like Ricky Minor back then, he was great to me. After you know he went on to work with Whitney Houston, and mm-hmm. and then he put he started you know doing this band contracting, which which is what led him to his great fame now. And he would put me on so many gigs, uh, like Arsenio Hall gigs, playing for Tevin Campbell or James yeah. Ingram or, you know, Patty Austin. And he hooked me up with so many people in ni- in the early '90s that really helped me establish my career. Yeah. And I'm very grateful to him for that. Well, we have a, a question from an Inside Music Cast <laughs> listener, Teresa Blackwell from uh, Mississippi, and uh, her question is, and it kind of. Uh, goes kind of harkens back to Chicago in a way, but she said, "What led you to your tour with Bill Champlin in 1994, and 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 what was your favorite part about the tour with him?" Oh well, I, you know, I, I knew Bill through Chicago. Right. And we always stayed friends and um, would do some writing, and I, you know, had him sing on some things for me. And basically, he just said, "I'm go- I'm going to Scandinavia for a month, and would you like to be part of the band?" I said, "Absolutely." And uh, you know, Scandinavia in December, so you knew I really liked him. (laughs) 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 Sure, I want to (laughs) go. But I love Bill. I I just think he's just an incredible talent. Plus, that's and that's where I uh, got to play. uh, the The band was basically that Santa Fe. You know, Jerry Lopez. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then I came on uh, along with Tom Saviano, and Tamara was playing singing background and. It's it's, it's uh, the what what's the, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon or six mm-hmm. degrees of separation. There's six degrees of inside music cast, and you've just mentioned in this interview about five or six people we've already talked to. Exactly, Michael Cimbello, Bill Champlin. Uh, who, who else did you Jerry just Lopez? Mention? Jerry Lopez. Jerry Lopez. There's <laughs> another one. There's another um, uh, guy that I rem- I remember really well that I used to. Ha- we had a great great time with when I was with Chicago. The last two months I was with Chicago. Um, a new band on Warner Brothers opened, uh, a band called PM. Okay. And I know you know P- Peter, right? Mm-hmm. Peter Mayer? Yep. And and Roger Guth and his brother, uh, Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, they were great fun and wonderful. I, I don't think I missed a show of theirs. I just <laughs> think they're so Jeez. ugh, amazingly talented. <laughs> Definitely, yep. 
Well, Bill's a good friend of the show, and I'm sure Teresa uh, there in Mississippi's uh, thankful for your, uh, your your response there. So that's great. Definitely. Um, your first. Let's let's dive into your music. Let's, let's stop talking about everybody else. Let's oh. <laughs> yeah, really. And you know, your first album, solo album, that is, was released in December in '93, and I I was I believe was that a Japan only release. No, I came out in the states too, but there yeah. was a there was a release on EMI in Japan. Um, because I did a, a Japanese song over there for one of their TV shows. Okay. Um, but no, we released it in the United States. Well, I think it's out of print now, but actually you can still buy that on your website. Is that right? Yeah, I have a few copies for sale. And if you, get, if, if, if you don't find them on my site, uh, Amazon usually has a, a few copies. Okay. Well, you know, being the, the liner notes guys that we are, and of course our listeners are, you know, I noticed right away that you have some really heavy hitters on that first solo project, including names like, you know, Dean Parks and, and Buzz Fighting on guitars and Jimmy Haslip on bass. And even Lenny Castro was on percussion and it was produced by Paul Brown. And, and tell us a little bit about that particular project and what was, what was your, your creative focus for the first solo album, Red? Well, you know, it really was since it was my first record, I, I was never setting out to be a recording artist. I just wrote songs. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there was a little, uh, a little club out here in Sherman Oaks called Le Café, um, which, in which everybody would, would go play. Right. And I think I had hooked up with a group of musicians um, after I came off of a Belinda Carlisle tour. I think uh, Kurt Biscara was playing drums. He's a big, big drummer, wonderful drummer, has had a great career now. But this was his first tour, the Belinda Carlisle tour. And he and I bonded, and he introduced me to a bunch of his friends, which included this amazing sax player named Jim Oppenheim, mm-hmm. and who later became Boney James. So oh, we started playing in bands okay. together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was almost like everybody was playing in each other's bands, and then I think it was that somebody dared me, because they knew I had some songs. They said, I dare you to come and do your own gig at yeah. Cafe. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's it, you know, game on. When somebody dares me, it's on. So <laughs> I went, okay, fine. So I started playing, and I started getting a really good response, and I thought, well, maybe my songs are okay. So I, I got enough songs together and started playing them regularly enough that, and by that time, Boney, Jim, who became Boney James, right. got a record deal and started working with Paul Brown. Paul Brown came to my gig and um, asked me if I'd like to, you know, if we, he could produce some demos with me, and I said, sure, and, you know, just one thing led to another, so... Boney and I basically recorded our first records around the same time, and, you know, he was all over my record, and I met Jimmy Haslip through, you know, again, through mutual friends, and again, that, Look Cafe was kind of a hub mm-hmm. for, like, all the musicians in Los Angeles. It was just, you know, all these, of, of a certain genre of sort of a jazz, pop, yeah. you know, Latin um, uh, type scene, and it was just a great place to go hang out and, and watch people and connect, mm-hmm. and I used to go there every night, whether I was playing or not, just to just to hang out, and you just meet a lot of people. And, you know, Dean Parks got involved with the Japanese version of this uh, record because that, the label wanted him, and uh, that was my first time meeting him was actually at the session. But mm-hmm. uh, Paul Jackson Jr. was also uh, a friend of Paul's, and, and uh, I see him now upon occasion. But, and Len Lenny, you know, we did, we did tons of gigs together, including Jero, so I knew him from before. Yeah. Um, but yeah. well, well, Red was a, a great album. I, it's, it's, in fact, it's one of my favorites of yours. And, and, um, Thank you. I and love I, that record. The, was... Yeah, the tracks that I, I really like were My Desire, Hurry, and, and Half a Chance. And oh. those three tracks have all have their own kind of unique groove yeah, to them. Do. And, I, yeah. and I've, I, you know, I've, I've read many reviews you know, I, you know, online and just in various places about 
you know, comparisons of your music and, and vocals and that sort of categorize you in with the likes of Sean Colvin and, you know, like a Sarah McLaughlin. But uh, if I'm allowed to throw in another comparison, you know, somebody, something stylistically when I heard Red that, it, you know, really reminded me a lot of like Ricky Lee Jones' Flying Cowboys album. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah, right. I love Ricky Jones. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think of all those people, I probably identify with her more than than anybody. Yeah. Um, there's just something about her. I remember seeing her very first concert at the Variety Arts Club mm-hmm. um, when she, for that first record, and I was just completely blown away by yeah. her integrity and willingness to just, I mean, she was just exactly who she was. And uh, she just killed me. I think if I could be that honest with my music, I'd be, you know, mm-hmm. I'd be swinging. And there's a there's another track on that album called False Hopes, and there's and this is something to you know to um, satisfy my curiosity. But there's a really awesome guitar solo in the middle of that tune, and I've always wondered if that who that was was that Dean or Buzz or was it one of the other? That actually was uh, uh, Greg Montani, who was in okay. my original band at the time. Um, you know, the typical thing that happens when you get a deal um, is that the producer comes in and wants to use all the cats and wants to, you know, not use your band. And I pushed for my band to, to be used on the record. So, you know, the, the heavy hitters came in as guests, but the core of the record was recorded by Kendall Kay on drums, Mark Brown on bass, and Greg Montani on guitar. Okay, all right. And they were the ones I was playing with at the time. Well, you know, before we move on, Kiki, I want to stop for just a second and uh, just play one example or one track from this album, Red. This is a track that I mentioned a second ago that I really liked. This is Hurry.
You had a seven-year span uh, between Red and your follow-up solo album, which is Love Loud. What kept you busy during that uh, stretch of time? Uh, I was like a touring fool. Really? Mm. Yeah, every time I I went to try and settle down and record, you know, I got drawn away with somebody else's project. And, and I'm not really sure, you know, why it happened that way, but um, I think... I just felt lucky to be working, and uh, I would be like, oh, sure, I'll go out. No, oh, the Tracy Chapman's going out. I, they all just seemed like a lot of fun. And, <laughs> um, you know, the, for me, the, the records for me are such a personal stamp um, of my emotions, and uh, they're like diaries to me. And, you know, that's it, not always fun. <laughs> it's just it's yeah. sometimes it's so gut-wrenching that it's almost like the touring was, was an escape and, and uh, you know, Finally, I was able to make Love Loud. And, and I, I also had a little bit of heartbreak with the record industry. Um, I was dropped, um, which was actually a good thing, uh, after Red. And Red didn't have the success I hoped it would have. It wasn't embraced by the format that we had produced it for. Mm-hmm. And I was not even embraced by the whole wave, you know, smooth jazz thing, which, again, is probably a blessing at this point. But I was heartbroken because it was my first record, and I loved each one of those songs, and I just felt kind of... Like, I didn't know if I wanted to continue making records. So um, that had something to do with it, too. But I'm glad I kind of got through the block, the emotional block, that kept me from being creative for a while. Mm-hmm. Because now it's, you know, it, it doesn't matter anymore. But it was just a process I had to go through. Yeah. yeah. So Love Loud was pretty much one of those records where you're on tour and you come back, come up for air, record a little bit, do a little bit of work on it, and then go out and tour again. Was it one of those? It, you, it was. Yeah. In fact, I started it with like three different people, and I was dissatisfied mm-hmm. and not happy with the direction. And um, so I ended up going to Mark Brown, who was my, you know, my friend, bass player. It was getting into production. I had all these tapes, and eight, I remember I had like 38 at tapes going. I don't know what to do with this stuff. <laughs> you know, help me piece it all together. I'm ready to throw in the towel. And he just went, here, let me, let me play around with some, some things. And he ended up giving me some tracks that he'd put together um, from my tracks. You know, so he produced some things, and they sounded really good. So yeah. we just made it work. And I think it's a, a really interesting record. Um, and you can definitely hear some different, different styles in there, but it ended up being a, a real representation of where I was at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, you were from a pr- production standpoint, this album seems, uh, it, to me, it seems a little more earthy than Red. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, the vocals seem less affected. They're a little drier, you know, as, as does the instrumentation as well. I mean, and your voice really seems to be more in the forefront on this one. Well, you know, the thing was, is Red was definitely designed for the wave. And okay. at the time in 93, mm-hmm. there was a crossroads in music and singer-songwriters, and, and there was a, if you remember that format, the uh, AAA format? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember going to the Gavin Convention, and I think that's the one in San Francisco, and there were conferences going on around smooth jazz and conferences going, around, uh, going on around AAA, which was actually, that was the format that launched, you know, like, that's where Sheryl Crow went with her first record, and our records came okay. out at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I stayed with smooth jazz, believing that this record would be embraced and that these songs would, you know, be embraced by their listeners and by the, the stations, and they weren't. And so that, my record, Red, would not have been played necessarily on a AAA format because mm-hmm. um, it just, the production wasn't, it, it, it wasn't edgy enough. Yeah. And the vocals were kind of, 
you know, reverbed out a bit, and it yeah. was more smooth, you know, mm-hmm. just like the format. So, <laughs> so Love Loud, we just went for, uh, you know, just a, like I said, an earthier, organic approach yeah. um, that you might have heard on, like, an early story record or Jonathan Brooke or yeah. um, something like that. And we were just experimenting and trying mm-hmm. to find something. And so that's why it's so much different. And it looked like uh, Bill Champlin helped you out on this record as well. He, did, he provided some backing vocals, he did right? some background vocals on More Love, yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, I want to jump ahead to your 2005 release called Kiki. And this one, I, I, I kind of lied a second ago. I said Red was my favorite, but I, I really like this one too, so I guess maybe it's a tie. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I love the jazzy arrangements that you bring to this project, you know, while still maintaining that earthy feel from Love Loud. Oh, well, thank you so much. That that was fun. Um, I reconnected with Paul Brown and um, on that, and we just thought, well, let's just go in and, you know, let's try and make another record. And, again, thinking we could get a deal. Mm-hmm. And he felt really confident about it. And so we went into some beautiful studios, um, uh, went into Schnee's studio. We went into the, uh-huh. um, oh, God, what is the... Did you just say Schnee as in Bill Schnee? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, big room. We recorded on 24-track. Wow. tape mm-hmm. and live you know with um with Dave Byer and Roberto Valley and it really was cool sounding and I really enjoyed it and mm-hmm. uh, same thing we we recorded these tracks tried to you know send it around for a deal you know to see if somebody would would uh, put it out and nobody put it out and nobody wanted to you know, take a chance and at that time broadcast architecture um was pretty much governing all the airplay yeah and they would not put their stamp of approval on it so huh. I ended up just doing it independently with Paul's blessing and, and um, you know, kind of went, okay, well, clearly <laughs> I'm not being <laughs> accepted in this genre for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of people have enjoyed it, listening to it. Well, you also incorporated uh, not only your originals, but you mixed it in with some incredible covers of mm-hmm. some yeah. classic tunes, such as, I'm going to name them here, the Smokey Robinson, The Miracles, Tears of a Clown. Traffic's Low Spark of High Heeled Boys, uh, Matchbox 20's Unwell, and Dionne Warwick's Say a Little Prayer. And I just was thinking about those four songs are all so diverse. How and why did you choose those particular tunes to cover? Well, it was between Paul and I, and I chose Tears of a Clown because I'd been playing with that arrangement for um, a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. I just, just did late at night, you know, usually after a glass of wine, I'll sit down and just, I just got into this like really slow version of it, you know, I'm going to cover this someday, you know, and uh, so this that was an opportunity for that, and I, uh, of course, love Low Spark High Heels Boys, it was a tune I used yeah. to play in high school at yeah. parties, and mm-hmm. and I love the piano on that, so that was a natural for me, and then Paul suggested Unwell, and he also suggested Say a Little Prayer, Yeah. and so, um, so yeah, that's Well, they were I all think. great. Oh, thank you. I especially, I especially like the one that really caught me was Tears of a Clown. I thought, this is cool. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I get really a, lot of, a lot of good comments off that because it's so unusual. People are like, really? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I think the best way to understand this, this really cool arrangement of Tears of a Clown is, is to listen to it. So let's uh, pause for a second, take a break, and listen to Kiki's arrangement of Tears of a Clown. And this is from her album, Kiki. Subject, but only by glad expression. 
Christopher Cross mentioned that uh, beneath all that earthy, folksy, you know, sort of ballads and soft rock, that there's actually a hard rocker underneath that skin, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Is that true? I mean, he mentioned that you like uh, ACDC and, and similar well, bands, you know? I Well, ACDC, I, you know, back in black, I guess I can, I can go yeah. with that. I am a rocker, though. I mean, I, but I'm like a 70s rocker. Right. So I'm like, you yeah. know, Zeppelin, I guess Alice Cooper, Black Sabbath, um, a lot of the English bands, like Family and, you know, early Jeff Beck and... I, I really do love that kind of music, and that's kind of what I was raised on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my chords and writing, you know, I think because of my love of classical music mm-hmm. is why I end up, you know, with these really 
kind of beautiful jazzy kind of chords, and a lot of people think I'm more of a jazz player than I am, and I'm really not, but I do enjoy this writing that way. Well, I wanted to ask about another artist that you've worked with, and, and that's Colin Hay. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've toured with him uh, when he, I, you know, when he takes his full band on the road. Of course, a lot of the times he goes out just, you know, solo acoustic. But right. you know, what an incredible songwriter! And and that guy, Eddie, and I just saw him about a year ago. He he's just incredible in concert. <laughs> not only, I mean, I'm not just talking about musically, but he tells some great stories. He's so funny. It's unbelievable. <laughs> no, he truly is. He, he is. is the consummate storyteller. Yeah. I mean, he's just really. Uh, him and a guitar, is, he doesn't even need to go out with a band. He's right. so yeah. on fire, and his tunes are fantastic, and he's just never, I've never saw him on an off night. Well, what I appreciated about him was the room he was playing when Eddie and I saw him. I, how many people do you think were there, Eddie? Maybe uh, 200 or so? Yeah, small dream, room. Yeah. And it was, but I mean, it was full, but it was a small room. But he treated it as such that he was, you know, in, in front of five, that he played for almost three hours and in front of about 200 people, and it was just incredible. <laughs> yeah, no, he's brilliant. A brilliant artist. Yeah. Do you have any more other plans to go back out with him in the future? You know, he's he's kind of. I mean, I I email him every so often. We talk every so often, but he's kind of on his own, um, you know, journey right now. And I'm really busy with Christopher and yeah. And I still were. I would do some work with Wilson Phillips now. And between that and trying to do my own dates, I actually don't have time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would play with him if you know if the opportunity arose again. But he's got a lot of different people that he kind of cycles in and like I said he, a lot of times he just goes out solo Buddy well, knows I've been chasing him around for about two years now to try yeah, to get him on Inside Music I, I told him about you guys <laughs> really? oh, you did? I, I, I emailed I gave him all that you know Gave me your info. Well, I talked to him after a show one time, and, and uh, you know we've we've come close. You know, I've just it's getting through the management part that's been sticky. So <laughs> he would have to be a two-parter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Kiki, your new album is called "The Beauty Inside," and on your site, you uh, you write the following, and I'm, I'm actually going to read this because it's really beautiful. It says, "Quote: uh, You say there's a turning point in our lives where we realize that someday never comes; that our time is now." And that if and if true happiness is to be enjoyed, it must be discovered from within. Was this what was established uh, as the foundation for this this album? You were coming at it from a very personal level. Um, you know, well, nothing was established from the get go. Okay. I think it was a series of events that led to a genuine transformation in my life, mm-hmm. um, and it, it was it's never any one thing, but it's a. Uh, it, it's one thing after another, and it's really your life in motion. And I think if you seize all these events that sometimes look like they're not positive, you know, um, they change you in a way where you become more uh, present and aware of each moment. So therefore, you live in the moment, and and you're looking for you're looking to be happy, but you, you become happier in each moment. That means the next moment's going to be happier, and the next moment's going to be happier. So it's, it's a lot about, you know, how thought attracts thought, sort of that mm-hmm. law of attraction mm-hmm. thing where the better it gets, the better it gets, right. and trying to stop any downward spiral of, of negativity in your life and sure. getting, get, being around people that are supportive of you and getting rid of the people that aren't right. you know, or the situations that don't, that don't feed you. And just living life more in a, in a healthier way. Mm-hmm. 
You know, that's just that's just great wisdom right there. You know, some people really, uh, you know, uh, enshroud themselves and circle themselves with a bunch of people that that don't feed good things, you know. Right. And, you know, it, it does, you know, as they say, and, and they say you are who you hang out with, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and we're all sponges and we absorb that. But my question is, you know, on this solo album, apart from your other two, um, what was was this album a little more transparent of you than the other ones? Yes, it it, it you know, I, I it, it wasn't like I stopped hiding out. I uh-huh. decided to let everything come to the surface, and uh-huh. I have, you know, I, there there are situations and demons and things like that in your life, and 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 things you've had to overcome, and a lot of things for me and my family in terms of just you know some just. <laughs> unhealthy relationships and some dysfunction and some some struggles that I've I've had with family members and and you know I I have a couple of sisters that deal with um you know like severe bipolar syndrome and mm-hmm. um you know I've had to really work with and help them and and be there for them especially now that my parents are gone which was also another transitional point for me in the last decade I lost both of my parents mm-hmm. and um you know you do a lot of growing and you start to see how you're sort of, uh, I hate to use the word codependent, but it really is codependent. Nature can be a, be tough for your boundaries, you know. Mm-hmm. Therefore, people start kind of stepping in your space and, and not treat you with the respect that you need. And once you start establishing respect in your world and, and in your life and you start demanding a certain quality of life, you know, you, things change around you and people shift mm-hmm. and you shift and... Uh, you know, one of the most significant things that happened to me in the last in the making of the CD is that I got separated from my husband, and, and we're now divorcing. It's a good thing, but it was a it was a transition based on my growth into a healthier place. Mm-hmm. Right. And and it, so it's really profound the, the record. I mean, as I found the beauty inside of me, the dead branches really started to slough off, and I realized, boy, I was surrounded by a lot of dead branches. Mm-hmm. So I'm very excited about this path that I'm on and and the fact that I'm 53 years old and I'm actually feel better than I've ever felt in my entire life Mm -hmm. and I'm more creative well you um I think you've got a couple of like a two-part documentary that's on your website and I I think you touch on some of those things so if anyone's interested in checking those out I actually I think I might have shared one on our Facebook site Eddie so you can find one there but yeah it's an ongoing my my brother actually is editing those editing those really beautifully yeah very nice job yeah from the video that I took during the during the making of and um you know it's going we're going to do probably you know eight or nine of them and we try to piece them into one long sort of documentary on the creative process and what it was like for me mm-hmm. making the record. That's very cool. And I, I was noticing in that, I was actually when we were watching uh, those, those two parts that you have already up there, I was curious to know about where you recorded. Where was that shot? That's, what, that was, that's at my home. It's that's at your home? Ranch, yeah. Oh, cool. Well, in talking more about this album, who were your engineers and, and uh, musical collaborators on this album? I, I know you've, you've worked with Paul Brown for a while. Right. Well, Mark Brown, no relation, um, is he was involved with the production. Him and I basically produced this record, mm-hmm. and I came to him with a dream of recording in my home because it's an old uh, 1928, you know, Adobe ranch house. Yeah. And uh, I grew up here, and uh, my piano's in this beautiful living room with brick walls and hardwood floors and high ceilings, and it just sounds really, it just yeah. innately sounds good in this room. Yeah. It always has. Um, so I was like, 
can't we just record here? And they're like, yeah. oh, my God, you know, we're going to get coyotes on here and all sorts of, you know, <laughs> it's going to be a nightmare. But um, I just went, you know, I really, really want to do it here. I just, it, it means a lot to me. Yeah, you know, sure. It's just uh, very personal. I know it's going to be a very personal record. So we ended up, he said, okay, we'll just make it happen. And my brother helped with uh, getting the Pro Tools t- together, and I, I had another um, Pro Tools consultant come in and, get the place wired up, and, and uh, I rented gear from Rack Attack, uh, a local rental company. were mm-hmm. very supportive in giving me whatever I needed, um, you know, as far as preamps and microphones. And it was actually a lot more painless than I thought. We mm-hmm. ended up uh, uh, setting up the drums. We did the drums. We basically spent the first sessions just getting the drums sound. Right, and I right. played. Um, we all set up in different rooms, but I, I just did scratch keyboards and scratch guitar and vocals. Mm-hmm. I wrote a lot of the songs on guitar, actually. Um, which was kind of my adventure, and I guess my ode to my, my rock and roll days. But I, I don't really play guitar, but yeah, yeah. I found the chord structures. Uh, it, it caused me to write differently because mm-hmm. I, I only knew like four chord, chords on the guitar. Mm-hmm. So I had to write in a way. It caused me to really get into the melodies a little more and the rhythms a little bit more. Um, they're still pretty complex songs. Uh, that being said. Uh, but they're different from the piano songs. Did you did you actually play guitar on some of the tracks in this album? Well, I forced them to keep one track. This one is staying, okay? It's <laughs> my record. I won't play it. That's right. So um, I did. I did play the acoustic guitar on "She'll Fly Away." Okay, very cool. You know, this al- album is, it's a very cohesive album. I really enjoyed it, listening to it uh, from start to, to end. Thank In you. fact, you know, it's sort of like, um, how can I say, it's, a, it's like an AOR work, like Carol King's Tapestry, where, you know, you have wonderful tracks, but at the full, the full strength comes in at, as a whole collection, you know? Thank you, you know, that. And, and, and this album works like that. You know, it really does. I, I don't see it as the type of album where, you know, you can listen to one track and say, okay, yeah, great, great track. I mean, it's, it's more powerful as, as, as a collection. Thank you. That's exactly what I was going for. Every every song it was almost like a musical. Like it, every song le- leads into the next, um, and and takes you on the journey of this person who is you know struggling struggling with her relationships, um, but also has faith. And some of it's lighthearted. Some of it's just kind of funny and silly. Other other stuff is is pretty deep. Yeah. And then the ultimate, uh, you know, the ending song is really about being stripped down and 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 ready, ready to move on, ready to leave it behind, and just mm-hmm. stand up there and and just be cleansed. Yeah, a neat track of mine that I, I really enjoyed was "Weird Fascination." Tell oh. me, tell me, tell me about that track. Oh God! <laughs> I mean, it really did. I really did like it. You're probably saying, "God, he likes that one." <laughs> no, I love that. I loved it. Okay, well, I, okay, I can't tell you who, who okay, okay. exactly, but I, it is about somebody. Use somebody's that, name, fictitious name. Uh, <laughs> we'll call him <okay>. Bart. <laughs> I'm it's sorry. It's about a person that I had this attraction to, but it was wrong and weird, and, and, and it was really not something that you know ended up going anywhere, but it was fun because it was in that early stage of, of where you don't know if it's your soulmate or soul psycho, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? it's, like, it's like, is this the one, or is he just, you know? I know who this is about. It's about Eddie. It is. Ah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's to, about you, Eddie. Yeah, I had as soon to. As you, you, know, you busted me. Yeah, I had to issue some some court stuff. We won't get into that. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's dangerous, but it's exciting, uh-huh. and it's 
And, you know, the most important thing, like especially in that second verse where, you know, you made it safe to believe. Yeah. You know, like, I believe in love again. I believe that all these things are possible. And mm-hmm. it's just weird. It's funny. Like, you know, you're not, like, having sex yet. You know, it's that <laughs> right before you're about to go for it and yeah, you're all tingly and kind of like, whew, this could be cool. Then gotta go. Yeah, gotta go. <laughs> 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 That's great. That's neat. Well, I want to satisfy Eddie's weird fascination, and let's take a listen to this track uh, by Kiki Epson off of her new album, The Beauty Inside. This is Weird Fascination.
day and age in, is, as far as like promoting music and getting it out there. And I just wanted to know what you're going to do in order to help promote this album. I mean, Inside Music has to know is a vehicle, the podcasting, this sort of thing. But I, there's, what are you going to do that's, that's, uh, that's to help promote it? I mean, are you going to be touring? Are you going to try, um, I don't know. What? Well, you know, I, I, I know what you mean. And yeah, I'm, I've sort of racked my brain trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the most important thing, like you said, is that this is an album that needs to be heard from the beginning to end. And right. if I can somehow, you know, in, encourage people that this is something that they really need to have and hopefully have the hard copy version. It's, I, first of all, it's not going to be available on iDisc, at least for a while. Okay. Um, or iTunes. iTunes. Um, I, I'm only printing up uh, CDs right okay. now, and that they're beautifully packaged, um, you know, full t- color inserts, booklets with the with the lyrics and whatnot. It's going to be a really lovely piece. Mm-hmm. And all the CDs that I sell are, are the proceeds go to. I have a nonprofit called the Healing Equine Ranch, right. and that's basically it resides in my ranch. And we have a we use a, a herd of rescued horses that I've kind of handpicked, and we do equine-assisted learning programs for the community. Okay, and, very um, cool. It's very underfunded. Um, you know, we charge a little bit of a donation when we can, but it's based on the principles of natural horsemanship, and it gets people in touch with a part of themselves. It's like the beauty inside. It's so it's so hand-in-hand hand with the message of this record that it's I, I didn't even plan it. This was a divine interve- intervention of some sort, right. like a, a divine collaboration, because my two passions are horses and music. Mm-hmm. And for me to be able to use horses with people who don't have horse experience, just on the ground, for them to discover about themselves the energy they project, the body language they use, um, the relational benefits of interacting with horses because they're so in tune with us, it, 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 people are blown away, and it improves their relationships with their own spouses and family and friends. So I do that when I'm not on the road, and if people can wrap their head around, you know, like I... The fact that the music that I do now all goes to support this it takes a little more work because you're constantly out there promoting through those avenues. But I'm also going to tour. I'm also working with you know Christopher, which we go all over the place, and he you know he's really generous to mention the CD. But yeah. I just started going out and doing some of my own dates, and it it was very well received. And I'm starting to see that through playing the songs and telling the stories as a journey that I'm touching people and I'm hoping that it'll just catch on and, and that people will really respond because they want, they want to know this and they want to feel better about themselves. And I'm hoping the positive message will help get people to spread the word. Is uh, the Healing Equine Ranch, is that, is that your program? Did you start it? Yes. Okay, very good. How long have you been, uh, how long have you had this program? Uh, we're going into our third year. Very cool. I mean, I've been with horses, I've been around horses my whole life. That's neat. And, um, you know, it's a result of my journey into natural horsemanship about 10 years ago yeah. and rescuing horses. Um, I, it just became a natural progression for me to start teaching. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you've seen Buck the film, uh, which is, uh, was an independent film just out just recently out about the horse whisperer who was the consultant for that movie, the real mm-hmm. trainer, the real yeah. guy. And it's, it's basically those principles, and you're learning to interact with horses as another herd member. Mm-hmm. not as a person. And uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting, I- introspective experience that you can have. Yeah, I read a lot about it. Um, actually, you can, you can link to it from your website, which yes. is com. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, very cool. And then uh, going back to your album, The Beauty Inside, uh, it's, is it available now? 
Um, it's available for pre-sale right now, and okay. it's at the manufacturer's being, being printed as we sure. speak. So, so it's just a couple weeks away from shipping. Okay. Well, be sure to let us know when it's available, and we'll, we'll tell our audience about that. I will. And uh, uh, you're gonna, what, you, it's only available in CD, and you'll be able to buy it where? Just on your site or maybe you CD? Buy it off my site. Okay. And the uh, best thing to do is come to, go to my site and get on my mailing list, or it, you can link over to the, to the uh, buy button. And, um, and for those of you who have uh, iPhones and Androids, I have a Kiki Epson app. Awesome. That you can actually download for free. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be posting that. Just, I just got it, so I'll post that probably this week uh, on, on the link where I can do that. And you can stream my songs. I'll be changing the songs around a lot and maybe doing live stuff. And who knows what I'll put up there. Wait, it'll no. have a lot of different content, uh, including the documentaries and all my show schedule, schedule and pictures and very cool news and stuff like that. I'm jealous, Eddie. We need an app. I know. We need an app. <laughs> <laughs> I want my own app, and I want I it was now. So blown away. I was like, oh, I have a Kiki Epson app. <laughs> Well, Kiki, this has been awesome. We've really enjoyed talking to you, um, learning more about you, and, of course, uh, talking about your new album, The Beauty Inside. Yep. Thank you so much. And um, let's stay in touch because I want to find out you know, what's happening with you down the road. You know, If you're going to be touring, I want to let our audience know about it, and maybe if you put something else out in the future, we'll, we'll talk about it again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kiki. All Thanks right, a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Special thanks to Kiki Ebsen for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zabe, Uwe Reith, and Mikhail Lingstrom. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.